Parents, here is all the evidence that you need that TV is bad for kids, especially public TV. When Sean was 14, he loved watching those British TV shows they're always running on PBS, Masterpiece Theater, Doctor Who. And then there was this show that I would that I would stay up really late and watch um, and tape and watch over and over again. The tapes called Dempsey and Makepeace, um, which was about a uh, an American detective who went to London because he had been like set up at home, and he was teamed up with a woman who was this aristocrat named L- Lady Harriet Makepeace, and uh, I was really on her side. I thought, you know, <laughs> she's got oh, it going you, on. You looked down on the American. Oh yeah. What Sean liked about Lady Harriet Makepeace and all the other Brits on TV was their aloofness, how they seemed above it all, how they looked down on Americans, which Sean did also, convinced there must be something wrong with a nation that produced jocks and bullies who harassed him at school. And sometimes, joking around with his friends, he would talk with a British accent. And then it was just something that spiraled out of control. I, I know that eventually I was just using an English accent literally from waking to sleeping, morning, noon, and night. Sean spoke with a British accent from the time he was 14 until he was 16. And at some point, his mother took him to see a psychiatrist. He was just really, he, I, he must, I don't know, you know, the different schools of psychology, but he, he was really very confrontive. And he was like, well, you know, you've got to stop doing this, he said, because you're not British, you know. And my mom, my mom just sort of sat over next to me and, and she, she sort of went, yeah, to agree with him and you know, to you know, sort of help him in showing me this. Sean was furious. He had an impulse to lecture the guy on how, in fact, he was British. And the only problem with that was, A, he knew very well that he was not, and B, his mother was sitting right there. She was sure to contradict him. It all just seemed impossible. Because that's what I was thinking. Like, there has to be a way that I could be British still. There, there must be a way that this is true somehow. Yeah, exactly. Well, today on our radio program, stories of people who tell a lie and then get to the point where they believe the lie more than anyone else does. In other words, stories of people pulling hoaxes on themselves. From WBEZ Chicago and Public Radio International, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Act one of our program today, The Sun Never Sets on the Moosewood Restaurant, in which two young men, both from small towns, try on new identities, false identities, and what they have to do to keep the lies going. Act two, conning the con men. Nancy Updike reports on a federal sting operation and how it caught con men by setting up a con of its own. Act three, outperforming the performers. A girl gets her big break on Broadway by going into a coma. Stay with us. Act one, the sun never sets on the Moosewood restaurant. This is the story of two young people who, for a period in their lives, in their search to figure out who they were, pretended to be people who they were not. We'll hear from Sean Cole and Joe Lovell, starting with Sean. He grew up in a small town in Massachusetts, a town that was approximately 3,350 miles from London. It was second nature. It was first nature. It was, you know, I, to this day I have 
trouble saying, oh, I faked an accent for two years. I mean, I, I had an accent for two years. I like... Sean, could I, could I just ask you to, to take a deep breath and, and describe for me what you had uh, for lunch today or perhaps for, for breakfast this morning in as close to the accent that, that you can uh, As can close as I can? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to take a sip of water here. Well, Ira, I, um, I had a salad. I had it at the Boston House of Pancakes, or pizza, rather. <laughs> what was the beverage? It was a uh, Snapple, a just lemon-flavored. I don't really like the peach. Joe Lovell's story began when he left the working-class town where he grew up, in upstate New York. His parents owned a liquor store in a small town. He was the first member of his family to go to college, and it was an especially big deal because he got into an Ivy League school, Cornell. It was one of those um, those first days of, uh, of college, you know, when you spend a lot of time. Everybody kind of moves in hordes, and you spend a lot of time in each other's dorm rooms. Mm-hmm. And there was uh, there were about, oh, I don't know, 10 or 11 of us in this one guy's room. And we were uh, just, like, sitting around eating pizza and talking and people were talking about what their, um, you know, where they were from and what their what their parents did and stuff like that. And um, there was one guy whose dad was a doctor for um, for the Knicks. There was another guy whose uh, who, whose father was an uh, elected representative from from New York State. And um, and then this other guy whose father was on the World Court, literally was a, was a member of the World Court. Oh my! And uh, so so it suddenly seemed like this incredibly sort of impressive group to me, and they seemed like just sort of worldly in ways that, you know, it was just beyond my wildest imagination and, and you know, worldly beyond, you know, what I am now, frankly. Um, <laughs> and I remember sort of sitting there at the time thinking, oh, my God, I'm so out of my league here. And then um, completely un- unplanned, I suddenly said, um, you know, as, as a slice of pizza was passed to me, this sort of pizza with sausage on top of it, I said, oh, you know, I, I, I can't take that because um, uh, my parents are vegetarians. And um, and the, everybody in the room kind of sort of turned and looked at me because it wasn't even as if, as if I said, well, you know, I'm a vegetarian. But I said, you know, my parents are vegetarians. And there's a sort of puzzled look on everybody in the, play, in, the, in, the in the room. And I said, well, you know, and I am too. I, you know, I've never eaten meat. And I'm not entirely, well, I mean, I, I have some ideas now about why I said that. But at the time, I had no idea what I was saying. It was like, you know, suddenly I'd become possessed. And, and I had to think of something to say about myself that seemed interesting. And... Um, and vegetarianism was the uh, was the thing that I chose. Now, um, did you tell people that you were actually from England? No, no, never that I was from Britain, but that, but in a way, that I was British. You know, there, there was a real distinction there for me. Like I, you know, I'd taken it on. Like I was culturally British now. Well, I think what it was is. Um, I mean, I think I did some some sort of calculus that took like a nanosecond in my head. And I thought, you know, I can't actually lie about what my parents do. But I think the connections that I was making were um, were this, that somehow, like, because I was from this town in the sticks, if my folks were vegetarians, then the whole history that that suggested was that they were sort of these, um, you know, these kind of leftist uh, academic radicals who had sort of dropped out of society and gone back to the land. And I was living in this bumpkin town in upstate New York and um, and you know my, my you know my folks were living some sort of life that was driven by their their political philosophy rather than you know I was just a guy who grew up in 
in upstate New York. You know, I did the old kid thing of like wishing that my real British parents would <laughs> come and tell me I was adopted and take me back to London. So I'm sitting there in the room and all these guys are looking at me and they're like, dude, you know, then you know, what do you eat? And suddenly I realized, I, I realized in that moment how little I knew about vegetarianism. And I, and I, <laughs> and I kind of I tried to be real sort of vague about it. You know, we eat salads and, and lentils. I remember sort of saying lentils a lot. You know, and, and there was a gap certainly in my education because like I would be using you know words that Americans just don't use you know I would instead of saying drugstore I would say chemist or you know uh, I would try my best to remember to say you know bonnet instead of hood or boot instead of trunk but I often couldn't. On the meal plan I I ended up eating a lot of big piles of iceberg lettuce and and chickpeas and and during that time, uh, would you find yourself sneaking to go to <laughs> get meat somewhere? Yeah, definitely. Um, at first, I would go really far from campus in order to in order to have like a um, like a BLT. There was this uh, there's this diner downtown in Ithaca, and uh, it was you know it, it felt incredibly illicit. I'd be sitting there and I'd have um, some reading material or something with me, and I'd be the lonely guy in in, in my booth. Um, and, uh, and I would order the BLT, and I would sort of watch it kind of coming from across the room, you know, with its um, toothpick in the top of it, and uh, a side of French fries with this meat gravy on top. And, um, and it would just, you know, when it landed on the table, it would just seem like this incredibly, you know, sort of wonderful moment, you know, when you're doing something just, just totally unlike what anybody would expect of you. I was nobody, you know, I mean, I was... I, I was living in an re- extremely small kind of rural town in the middle of nowhere. Uh, it, was, it was, I guess, in a way, like this was my way of traveling, and, you know, in a way, and of being somebody and sort of of achieving an identity, um, which I, I guess I didn't feel like I had. Like I didn't feel like I... I'm just sort of re- realizing this now. But I, I guess I, I didn't feel as though... Uh, I had anything that made me up. I mean, what, what I realized fairly quickly is that, is that if, if this is going to be believable, I actually have to, um, well, well, I have to believe in it. But I also began to not only believe, but really sort of um, take on as my persona all, all of the stuff that I imagined was associated with vegetarianism. So, Like what? Well, you know, certain sort of <laughs> certain um, political convictions and um, uh, ways of dress. I wore ripped jeans and I wore combat boots, but I also wore like a kind of stage um, uh, jacket that you would see, you know, in a in a in a community theater production of Hamlet. Yeah, you know, I bought sandals. I very specifically remember buying, going down to this thrift store in downtown Ithaca and buying a pair of um, fatigue shorts, which just seemed like, you know, I might as well have been Che Guevara at that point. I, <laughs> as far, I mean, as far as I, I was concerned, I was, yeah, I was a dangerous leftist. Um, did you at any point during this find yourself in the following uh, argument well, you would say, I've never had a hamburger, and somebody would insist, oh, you must have had meat at some point. And then you had to argue your side? <laughs> yeah, definitely. It, was, it, it, it wasn't it was pretty. Um, and, of course, you know, I had grown up 
I mean, just just to put this in context for a second, if if, if you don't mind. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, not only had I had hundreds of hamburgers and gone to the McDonald's drive-through hundreds of times, but but the counterpoint situation that I always think about when I remember this time is that um, when I was a senior in high school, we my family for um, sort of time-saving reasons uh, decided that. Um, a great thing to do would be to go to Arby's Roast Beef. I don't know if you you have those out in Chicago. I think they're they're countrywide. Um, so my dad and I would go to Arby's on say like a you know Thursday afternoon or something or, or after I got out of school, and we would go in there and we would buy um, forty eight Arby's Roast Beef sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> we would and they would put them in this cardboard in this cardboard box, and we would bring home we would bring home this um, this giant box full of those tinfoil covered. Arby's roast beef sandwiches, and we would stuff them in our refrigerator, in our freezer. We would freeze the Arby's roast beef sandwiches, and then we would have them there. Buns you know, the, and all, buns, buns and all, yeah. And so we would have them there as as ready made snacks uh, whenever we might want one. I mean, that's the kind of meat eating that my family was engaged in. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing was that I had these run-ins with um, with doubting my British identity, like. Oh really? Yeah, as though it were slipping away, and I would, uh, I would really go nuts at that point. And you know, there was one time, you know, there was one time it would happen at home. I was like at home, and and I was like, oh my god, I just, you know, I have to do something. I have to affirm my devotion, you know. So I think I, I, well, I know I opened up the window and I psyched myself to do it. I was like, oh man, if I don't do this, like it, it won't come back. And I opened up the window and then I. And I sc- like I screamed. This is the middle of the night, or you know, ten at night. I screamed, "I love England!" Like outside the, and of course in a British accent, outside the window. Um, and and then you felt better. You felt like you had reasserted. I felt yourself. like I had done something at least for England. Yeah, I had I had fortified my 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 Britishness. I would find myself in these. Um, in these conversations where people were saying, you know, you've never had a McDonald's hamburger? What kind of American, 18-year-old American, has never had a hamburger from McDonald's? Quite a legitimate question, I would add. Absolutely, absolutely. And I would say, yeah, you know, I've just never had one. They scare me, and I would sort of, like, talk about the ways, you know, and I would make up these stories about how I'd come close a couple of times, how my friend, a friend of mine in high school had bought me a Big Mac, and there I was sitting on the front seat of his car, and I almost ate it and then couldn't bring myself to do it, and... So yeah, there was all the sort of drama that I um, well, that I lied about. My my mom and dad came down to um, came down to visit for parents' weekend, and um, they were really proud that I was going there, and and really excited to come down. And they came down to visit. And really proud because you were the first generation to go to college. You right. made it into this Ivy League school. It was a big, big deal. Right, exactly, exactly. And so they drove down from Camillus, um, which is about, you know, an hour and between an hour and an hour and a half, they came down. And, um, you know, in that week leading up to Parents Weekend, everybody's talking about their parents coming and everybody's making reservations at restaurants, you know, where to eat on Saturday night. And everybody's sort of planning on taking their parents to the football game on, you know, Saturday during the day. And it suddenly occurred to me, this real sort of panic set in that, um, you know, that, that, that my parents would come down and we would go to a football game and my dad would buy a hot dog. And, um, you know, and somebody like across the field would see <laughs> Mr. Lovell eating a hot dog. And, you know, and then, of course, the cat would be out of the bag. <laughs> <laughs> 
And so I thought, you know, I've got to make a I've got to make a reservation at a restaurant at some place either A where nobody else's parents will be um or at or at a vegetarian restaurant. And so what I did was um was make was make a reservation at at the Moosewood restaurant which is in Ithaca and um you know there's that the, the Moosewood cookbooks that are out and and vegetarian cookbooks. Exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's this nice little vegetarian restaurant in Ithaca and in a slightly famous place. Um but then we got there and um you know, and it just, I just—I remember sitting down at the table in the Moosewood, and um, uh, and and you know the 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 bowls are these kind of carved wooden bowls, and um, I mean everything about it feels like, well, like a, like you know like a vegetarian restaurant, and, and not just um, a vegetarian restaurant, but kind of a cartoon of a vegetarian ex- restaurant. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And you know, and I was looking at my parents across the table, and they were sort of dressed up, and they were excited to be coming down. And, uh, you know, and, and I could tell, like, my dad was sitting there and sort of perusing the menu and thinking, well, you know, I'll, you know, maybe this lentil salad will be good <laughs> or, or whatever. And I could tell he was sitting there thinking, you know, geez, I just drove an hour and a half. All I want is a steak and a baked potato and a beer, you know. Um, and there I was bringing them here. And, and But they were so game about it. They were so, so sort of willing to go along with it because for some reason they thought I really wanted to bring them there. And I just thought, geez, you know, these parents, these 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 people, my my, my parents, um, you know, have really like given up a lot for me to, to come there. I mean, financially, uh, they were really stretching themselves, and we were taking out all sorts of loans. You know, all those all of those things that that people do in order to go to college. Yeah. And they, you know, they never complained once about doing it. And they would, you know, they just wanted to come down and see me there and feel proud that I was there. And I was sort of hiding them out in this vegetarian restaurant. I felt so bad about it afterwards. And they never once complained. And they went home, and I imagine they, I, I sort of imagine them, you know, stopping at a Hardee's just outside of Ithaca and <laughs> getting a burger as soon as they say goodbye. Um, but you know, after that, I just thought, geez, you know, I've got to, I got to find some way to, um, to come clean about this. I mean, is it okay if your child decides to express himself in an alternate personality for a period of two years? I think there's... It's funny. I never thought I would say this, but I think there's nothing wrong with that. I never thought I would say it because I think... Because I wish that I hadn't done it now. But, I don't know, maybe I learned something from doing it. I mean, I, I think that that is, you know, par for the course. Like, that's part of... Now, I think, that's part of growing up. I, mean, I think it was um, it was probably necessary for me at that at that time in my life because it gave you more confidence. Yeah, and there was there was some bridge that 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 this you know that this allowed me to cross. Joe Lovell and Sean Cole. Joe Lovell was the executive editor of a podcast company called Pineapple Street Media. Sean Cole works in public radio. Indeed he does. He's one of the producers of our program.
Act two, conning the con men. The American legal system, for the most part, does not uphold the principle of eye for an eye. If you steal somebody's car, the police do not steal your car in return. If they catch you selling marijuana, they do not sell marijuana to you as your punishment. But if you're in the business of running scams, authorities catch you by running a scam on you. This is the story of a con man who made millions by fooling people over the phone until he was the one who got fooled. Nancy Updike reports. The guy's name is David Diamond. That's his actual name. He was one of the most successful salesmen in one of the longest-running telemarketing scams in Los Angeles history. David Diamond was a salesman at a boiler room. This is Dale Sakovich. He's been a Federal Trade Commission investigator for 29 years. He's the one who busted Diamond. He was living in a very expensive home up in the hills in Woodland Hills. He drove a custom um, Porsche Carrera that he had shipped over here by airplane from Germany, from the factory. They lived very high on the hog. David Diamond was just one of a whole bunch of guys making money hand over fist in an operation in Southern California that was basically running the same scam over and over under different names for seven years. It was an investment scheme. Give us your money and we'll put it into this great 900 number business or this online shopping network or this hot new internet service provider. Needless to say, no one ever made a dime except the people running the scam who cleared $40 million. Since Diamond was one of the operation's top salesmen, he made $2 million in commissions in just four years on the job. He got 30% of whatever he talked a person into investing. That means he personally conned people out of more than $6 million. The FTC caught Diamond and the others in the operation essentially by conning the con men. They had volunteers pose as dupes and record their phone calls. Because the FTC brought a case against the operation Diamond worked in, some of those recordings are now part of the public record. I got Dale Sokovich to listen to the tapes with me and talk about David Diamond and the FBI volunteer who caught him. The woman on the tape, I can't tell you her real name, but she uses the alias of Marge. Uh, she assumed the identity of a person who is named Marge. Uh, Marge was a real person who we in law enforcement and who people in the telemarketing business refer to as a mooch. A mooch is someone who will essentially buy anything from anybody who calls her on the telephone. And in fact, she did over a number of years. She spent hundreds of thousands of dollars. The real Marge. The real Marge spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on bogus prize promotions, investments, um, gold coins, you name it. So the FBI went to Marge and said, we really think that we need to take your telephone number away from you because it's being used to ruin your life. So once Marge agreed to that, her telephone number was installed in the home of an FBI volunteer. And that volunteer, every time that phone line rang, the Marge line, that volunteer would pick up that telephone and answer it and pose as Marge. Yes. It's David Diamond. How are you? Oh, I'm okay. It's kind of warm here. Yeah? I sent you off a video and uh, a package. Yes, I have it. Okay. The video is with regard to Mark Erickson. 
Uh-huh. Mark Erickson is, is the person who is um, is heading up the program. Yes. And uh, he is very successful in taking upstart companies and making them successful. You've probably heard of Hard Copy. He's the produ- original producer of Hard Copy. I've heard of it, yes. Okay. You're smiling as you listen to this. What, what are you smiling about? Well, I'm smiling because I. it's been a while since I've heard, heard Marge, and she sounds so old and so fragile and such an easy mark uh, when, in fact, you know, she's this sharp FBI informant. And she doesn't look as old as, as she sounds. Trust me. Uh, so that's one, one aspect of it. The, the other aspect is this whole Mark Erickson thing. Yeah. Is he a real person? Mark Erickson is a real person. He, he was named in our lawsuit. And was he an, uh, an original producer of hard copy? No. He was a segment producer and on-the-air reporter for hard copy for a brief period of time. And, I mean, is this sort of typical of the cons in the tapes that you've heard that that they'll try to um, associate um, what they're selling with a legitimate business or, or organization exactly. or television show, something that people have heard of? Exactly. Uh, they want to make this, yeah, something people can relate to. Here's the thing. You have to invest everything you've got or do nothing at all. And I'll say that again. You should invest everything you have. You should transfer all of your investments into this program or do nothing. It doesn't make sense to do just a little bit. You, you should think about doing a million dollars in this program. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> That's a lot of money. You need to liquidate every nickel you've got. You either want to be in this situation, you either want to be in the situation wholeheartedly, and upgrade your investments, or or you don't. My suggestion to you is just do the whole thing. Well, I would never liquidate everything I have. My question is, why not? Because uh, there's always gambles in anything like this. Anything like what? Well, any investment like this. Like this? What uh, does that mean? Well, anything you invest in, there's always a gamble. Now, I want to ask you, um, you told me once um, that you thought he sounded nervous on this tape. Um, And in this part where she's saying, you know, an investment like this, and he's sort of, you know, questioning her, well, what do you mean like this? I wonder, is, do you have any sense that he's suspicious that she might know what he's up to? I mean, do they know that volunteers are out there trying to trap them, posing as dupes? No. Since we talked about this tape last, actually sort of had a, a revelation that came to me as to why. Uh, I listened to over 40 individual tapes of David Diamond, uh, conversations with Marge and conversations with others over the course of about a year. And one of the things when you've listened to all of them, you find that David in sort of the early, the earlier part of that year um, was much more kind of uh, – sweet and cautious and trying to bond with these women and patient and sometimes would spend an hour on the phone with them. The tape would be an hour long. But this tape was made towards the very end of that year period, probably within a week or two of our raid. Having gone in on the raid and searched David Diamond's desk that day, I came to realize that David Diamond was starting to question whether he wanted to do this anymore. 
he was he was starting to really have some concerns about moral concerns moral concerns about what they were doing and i believe that in these last couple of weeks that and it's kind of shown in this tape he was becoming a little bit desperate he wanted to make a couple of more big hits and he just couldn't figure out why this woman wasn't going to write him a check so he started getting frustrated and, you, and it comes out in his voice what evidence did you see that he was starting to have you know moral qualms about what he was doing um David had become a born again. There were religious tracts all over his office and posters on his wall. Just just recently. I don't know exactly what the time frame was. I do we do know that he had given a lot of the money that he had made to his church. And we believe that a lot of that was sort of a self-imposed penance that he could justify what he was doing because he was he was giving he was tithing this this money that he was taking from these poor victims into his church. If $30,000 is what you made on every $5,000 and you put $50,000 in this program, that's $300,000 return. Mm -hmm. That's why I'm telling you, you need to do a million dollars in this program. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I would never put that much in in any program. Do you have an obligation to yourself as an investor to make the most amount of money possible? Well, you know, at my age, it's really not that, uh, what do I want to say? I have enough to live on for the rest of my life. I understand. But <laughs> is it still in your best interest to make the most amount of money possible if you can find to do it as safely as possible? Um, it's my obligation not to lose what I have. Correct. But it's also your obligation to keep your money working for right. you. Otherwise, right. Otherwise, what's the point? When I heard this part of the tape, even though I knew that, um, that this woman, this particular woman, was not getting conned, that she was, in fact, conning him and trapping him, um, I, I started to get so angry because I was thinking, you know, he is really trying to take all of this old woman's money, all of it. She's saying, I have enough to live on. He's saying, you have an obligation to make more. Do you ever hear things like that and just just get angry, even though you know that she's sort of in on the, on the con, on the joke? Uh, every time I hear these pitches, I'm outraged um, <clears throat> because I – am the person that spoke to people who really did send David Diamond tens of thousands of dollars that consisted of their life savings and now don't have any money to even buy groceries. I've interviewed them. Um, I've seen them sob. Uh, yeah, it makes me very angry. And what sort of recourse do they have? Uh, slim and none. Slim and none. We have public companies that want to take you public. Mm -hmm. So if you've got a public company that's passed judgment on it, it's not even me talking anymore. If Mark Erickson wants to, to do business with you, it's not even me talking anymore. Mm -hmm. You have the ability to make an absolute fortune. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And it doesn't make sense not to have every nickel you've got in this particular program. That's why I said it's an emergency investment situation, and you should do at least 50 to 100, 150 units while you have the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Well, how much are you investing in this? I'm not investing anything in this. Uh-huh. My investment comes in the time that I put with my client. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. And the fact that when they make money, they reinvest with me. Right. Uh-huh. That's the whole point. Uh-huh. You were smiling again What when, when, when she said, you know, how much are you investing? I mean, is she just screwing around with him? Of course, she's playing with him. Yeah. I mean, she's, she's trained <laughs> to ask him those kinds of questions so that he responds with a misrepresentation. But that, that doesn't sound like it's part of the script. That just sounds like her, I mean, her being mean in sort of a, no, I mean, sort of a delicious way. Well, no, I think what we were trying to do or her handler was trying to do was get her to make, to get him to say, oh, yeah, I've got, I'm in it and I've got my, my mother and my grandmother in it and, and I'm putting away money for my child's education with it because then we could show later that he hadn't. Did you ever, did you ever talk to Marge? about what it's like to to do this. Do they ever, I mean, do they ever sort of have fun just thinking, you know, I'm, t- I'm just turning the tables on this guy. He has no idea. I, I can't, I wish I could answer the question. I've never spoken to them. I would, I'd love to get the answer to that myself. I'd like to ask that question myself. Um, I think they get a lot of personal satisfaction though. How often do you get a chance to catch a bad guy as just a regular civilian? Yeah, exactly. You know, I do it too. I tape people using an alias in, in cases that I work. And is it fun? I, I love it. I love to get these people to tell me stuff. It's, it's uh, you know, it's, a, it's like acting. It's, there's, a, there's a rush. The rush of a con, the pleasure of it is knowing that you have more power than the person you're conning. You know more. You know that it's a con. And let's face it, given the choice between being the mark and being the con man, nobody's going to choose to be the mark. But the problem is, the more confidence you have in your own con, the more easily you become a mark yourself. Con men get taken by other con men all the time. There just seems to be something about the particular arrogance of always being on the knowing side of the con that makes for a really, really good mark. Nancy Updike is one of the producers of our program. In the years since we first broadcast this episode, today's show is a rerun. Dale Sekovich, the FTC investigator who busted David Diamond, has died. Coming up, a child tries to fix his own family by harnessing the most powerful force that exists anywhere. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. This is American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Each week on our program, of course, we choose a theme, bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's program, pulling a hoax on yourself. Stories of people who think that they are fooling others until they are not anymore. We've arrived at Act 3 of our program, Act 3, outperforming the performers. It's a measure of just how hungry people are to create a community that a full-fledged, tight-knit group of friends could form out of a publicity stunt. 
Back in 1996, a new musical called Rent was moving from a small theater in New York's East Village to the big time, a Broadway house just a half block from Times Square. The show presented a romanticized view of what it means to be young and broke, and to keep the magical air of youth and poverty in the house, the producers decided that every single night they would sell two rows of seats, the first two rows, some of the best seats in the house, for a price nearly anyone could scrape together, $20 a pop, less than a third of what tickets normally sell for on Broadway. Hundreds of teens and 20-somethings took the bait. So many that if you wanted to get one of the cheap seats, you had to arrive at 6 o'clock the night before, get on line with a sleeping bag, and stay out all night. See where they're sitting? That's where we used to sleep. If we, yeah. we, used to we would see... sleep all where those photos are. Joe Gillis and Rebecca Allen stand in front of the theater where Rent is still playing, near a row of life-size pictures of the cast, mounted on a wall by the theater doors. During the show, we had to stay out there because they had to keep the marquee area clear. So as soon as the show was over and they closed the doors, we'd all run over and we'd all like claim our spot because we'd all want to sleep under our favorite cast member. <laughs> and so which one was yours? Um, I slept under Daphne once and I think I slept under Anthony another time. You know, you're sleeping on the pavement while people walk by ignoring you and you're like, yeah, I'm just like those people in the play. I mean, you don't really think that, but... But a small part of you thinks that. A small part of you thinks that and like will identify more with the play, like the more you can be like it. When they were in line, everybody would hang out all day, grab some food at McDonald's or at the diner across the street. And the fans who didn't show up at the theater on any given day would communicate through an email list with hundreds of rent heads on it. Most of them were suburban kids like Joe and Rebecca, students. Joe says that he was closer to the rent fans than to his friends back in high school. It was on the rent line that he first came out as gay, long before his friends back home knew. For lots of teenagers, this was the first community that felt like their own. Days of inspiration, playing hooky, making something out of nothing. The need to express, to communicate, to going against the grain, going insane, going mad. It's easy to see why they like the show, which unironically celebrates what it unironically calls the bohemian life in French. A life of poverty and love and art. The setting is contemporary New York, Characters are homosexuals, homeless people, interracial couples, drug addicts, flailing artists, and doomed HIV-positive lovers. The mood of the show is at once fantastically idealistic and desperately tragic. Several characters are dying of AIDS. And among the throngs of young people who are drawn to the magnetic pool of Rent's message that you should live each day like it's your only day on Earth was a young student who we'll call Stephanie. All of our interviewees also agreed to call her Stephanie. Uh, we met one about two and a half, three years ago when we were both uh, interested in the musical Rent. We belonged to the same mailing list online. Um, and she drove up to New York with some friends from college and they stayed in my apartment while they went to see the show. This is Catherine Skidmore, a friend of Stephanie's and one of the ringleaders among the Rent fans. She was a founder of one of the big internet mailing lists about the show. She's young, used to run in computer hacker circles. One of her tattoos is her social security number in binary code. Now she works for a web startup. Stephanie was one of the many people she got to know back during the heyday of Rent. I lived the closest to the theater out of anybody, and I think I was the only person on the line who had her own apartment, so I used to let friends stay with me when they drove up. Really? How often would you let somebody stay with you? Up, I think every weekend or every other weekend. It was like a turn to the, the hotel Catherine. 
She says Stephanie let everyone know that she had a medical condition called autonomic neuropathy, and she said it was terminal. She told this to people on the line, and she told it to members of the cast of Rent. When she was in New York, she used to come to the to the stage door and ask the you know, actors to give her tours backstage or ask them out for, for lunch or dinner. When she would email us, um, Stephanie would say, you know, I'm, I'm not feeling great. Could you, you know, could you ask the cast to send me a card? Could you ask them to email me? I first got a letter that she kind of sent the same letter to several of us in the cast in New York. Anthony Rapp played the lead role in Rent. She was, you know, young aspiring actress, a student who was suffering from an illness, and that the show brought her great comfort. Hmm. And um, she didn't know how long she had to live, and, you know, my heart went out to her, as all all of our hearts did. You know, my heart just went out to her. It really did. Gwen Stewart was another cast member. And whenever she came to the show, I would make sure that I spent, tried to spend a little time with her. We'd gone out to dinner, you know, a couple times, and we'd sit around and talk. And I called her on the phone. You know, I gave her my home number. And it was to the point where I literally made a point of praying for this girl each and every night. Well, ultimately, what we were hearing was that she was about to have this major surgery. Mm-hmm. And... um that she was very scared about it, and that she came to New York right before she was going to have it. That was when uh, Gwen Stewart and I went to lunch with her. You know, she said that she was contemplating suicide, and I'm a spiritual person, and, you know, I'd gone as far as to, like, look up all these scriptures to support life and to support hope and faith, and I would give them to her and tell her to read her Bible, and, you know, and a lot of the conversations were like that. And then, you know, if it got a little too heavy, um, we'd swing it around to rent. And at that lunch, she brought out some medical paraphernalia, like a syringe and like a tu- like an IV tube thing. And she went off to the bathroom to supposedly administer herself some medication. After her lunch with the stars in New York, Stephanie flew back to the city where she was from, where she dropped in on a touring company of Rent, which happened to be performing there. And they held a... Like, she was getting to know them and befriending them and telling them her story, and they held a prayer circle for her the night before her supposed surgery. You mean just ba- backstage at the theater? Yeah, she Wish- went backstage, and they held a... Yeah, she was there with the cast, and they held a prayer circle for her. Perhaps you've already figured out where all this is going. In the end, Stephanie did not turn out to have any kind of terminal condition. What's remarkable about her story is how far she was able to push the lie and how compulsively she did it, almost like it was out of her control to stop herself. As she got sicker, her friends in New York started to get emails from someone named Monica, who claimed to be a friend of Stephanie's. It was Monica who wrote them when Stephanie went into surgery. Monica gave lengthy accounts of Stephanie's condition and urged them to organize get-well cards and calls from the cast. Catherine later collected all of Monica's and Stephanie's emails into a massive document that she calls the Log of Deception, with her roommate, Jen Eldridge, who also met Stephanie on the red line and considered her a close friend. Catherine stood at her computer and scrolled through the log. Oh, yeah. Oh, where's my favorite one? Monica. Yeah, Monica <laughs> emails are good. Uh, By the way, what about the coma? That's I was thinking about the suicide one. Oh, the suicide one's good, too. There's coma and suicide involved. 
They decide to go for suicide. Here we go. Uh, this is an email from Monica on Friday, November 7th, 1997 at 9 p.m. where she says, uh, she sent this directly to me. You know, I, I'm at Stephanie's. I just followed the EMTs out to the ambulance. Stephanie tried to end it all tonight. I found a syringe in an empty container of morphine. Uh, she didn't know that I was coming to check on her, blah, blah, blah. They say she'll be okay, and I caught her just in time. Um, so she really, really went all out, and I don't know how much of this she planned or how much... Uh, and keep in mind, this is a weekend she knew that all of her friends were converging in New York at Catherine's yeah. apartment. Like, we were all going to be there together when this email came in. I think we were all in different all levels way. of transit when you got this email and started, you know, just being very upset and oh, trying yeah. to get contacted. Everybody's in cars and on trains <laughs> trying to get there. And, and, then, and, and then what happened once you all knew that she was... Uh, we tried to call the hospitals and we tried to call 911 to see if they had a record of it. Um, I called Kenny and he Oh, said, you tried to call her in a hospital and you couldn't find her. We couldn't, her in we couldn't a find her. We hadn't that no hospitals in her area had records of her being checked in. Um, so we just said, Oh my god, she's somewhere and we can't get to her and we don't know what to do and nobody knew what to do. It's amazing how unthought out it is. That like, what did she think you were gonna do once you got that email? I don't know. And so your evening together, uh, like where all of you were going to be together, hanging out, ended up being completely Pretty miserable. Yeah. yeah, it was. It was really miserable. We had, you know, we we went. I guess we saw the show, and everybody bawled their way through it and <laughs> cried their way through it, and uh, you know, went and told the cast members, of course, because that's uh, what what we thought she'd want us to do. There was one person who always doubted Monica's story, Josh Safran, who at the time was boyfriends with the star of Rent, Anthony Rapp. Josh not only doubted that Stephanie was sick, he felt horribly guilty for doubting her. This was his problem in a nutshell, he says. Anthony was all about trusting and loving people. He was all about cynicism and mistrust. Fortunately for him, his friends Sean and Michelle also doubted Stephanie. So we were suspicious. We were talking more about it for a few days. But then she goes into the hospital and she goes into a coma. That is, an email from Monica said Stephanie was in a coma. And when this happened, Catherine, who wasn't doubting at all, made a decision. I talked to Catherine, and Catherine was like, even though she doesn't want us to go there, even though Stephanie doesn't want any visitors, we're going to go. She's in a coma. We should be there. And I said, good. And I said, tell Monica. And as soon as they told Monica, Stephanie woke up. As soon as that happened, Sean and Michelle and I were positive that we got her. So we Why? Why? What did it... What did that mean to you that, that 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 she woke up at that moment? She woke up so they didn't have to come. That was the Monica's the way she phrased it in the email was, "Oh, she's better. You don't have to come. She'd like to see you in a few days." You know, it was like so obvious that she was pushing off. So we wanted we needed to find a way to make you know sure how to make sure. Well, it turns out that we live in a country where if there's an emergency requiring a plumber or an electrician or a mechanic, people turn to professionals. But when it comes to detective work, deep down. We all believe we're capable of it. It really became a, a, a crusade. I mean, it became, I mean, I, there were three days where none of us slept. We only worked on this, and that was insane. <laughs> it's embarrassing to, to think about it. They called dozens of hospitals in the city where Stephanie lived, asking if she was a patient. They researched the disease she supposedly had. They poured over old emails looking for clues. Finally, they decided to call the elusive Monica, who no one had ever spoken to. It turned out that there was, in fact, a real Monica who went to school with Stephanie. And after some spade work, they found her real last name. We called information, and there was that number. She existed. She was there. We immediately were like, oh, f**k. 
this was when this was like the moment of crisis where we were running around the apartment freaking out thinking we are terrible people because if we call this number and this girl is like yes stephanie's in the hospital but she's much better then we were terrible cynical people for like it was everything that is wrong with the world and wrong with you know us uh, how could we ever think this how could we spend so much time on it how could we be such a horrible person <laughs> So I called the number, uh, and Monica answered. And I was like so nervous. Uh, I remember it was in my dingy little kitchen with like sort of the plastic countertop, and I was so nervous, and I was like shaking the plastic countertop, and things were falling all over. And Monica was like, you know, I've heard about you, but there's all this loud noise. And I was like, uh, so nervous. I said, have you seen, or how's Stephanie? And she said, she's doing better. And I was like, okay, thank you. And I hung up the phone because I didn't want to, I couldn't deal with it. But immediately, Michelle, Sean, and I were like, she's doing better. She really is, she really is sick. And then we thought, but wait a minute, maybe not. So they were like, you have to call back. And I'm like, I'm not going to call back. We just found out we're horrible people. She really is ill, blah, blah, So they were like, but she didn't sound concerned. She didn't sound worried. Call back. So I, we waited 10 minutes and then I called back and I was like, hi, I'm sorry, Monica. It's Josh again. Uh, look, when's the last time you saw Stephanie? And she said, I saw her in class this morning. And that was it. They contacted Stephanie, let her know that they had talked to the real Monica. They knew there was no coma. After some hedging, Stephanie finally admitted she wasn't dying. The next week, Catherine used her plane ticket and went to talk to Stephanie in person. You know, I, I had a list compiled of, of questions from our friends on why she did this, how sick was she, um, and she had basically admitted that she did this as a cry for attention of sorts, but, and it went overboard. Um, that once she started telling us all of these lies about what was going on, she didn't have any way to back out of it. Um, then she kept going, and she didn't, she didn't feel like she could stop at any point during this. Stephanie declined a request to be interviewed for this radio story. Chen remembers that before everybody knew the truth about Stephanie, it was a regular thing to get panicky calls from her between midnight and 2 a.m. She would call me crying in the middle of the night that she was just ready to kill herself, couldn't deal with stuff. And I honestly think that when she called me and said these things, that it was genuine. It was just sort of something that went along with it, and we would talk about it when she needed to and needed to be upset and cry, and there were many conversations about how she just didn't know how to deal with it anymore. And as I look back on it, and I wonder if some of those I don't know how to deal with it conversations were really about she didn't know how to tell people that she had done this. I think there was a point for her when she realized that this was going to blow up in her face. Will I lose my dignity? Will someone care? Will I wake tomorrow from this nightmare? A word now about the plot of the musical rant. It is, of course, about terminal illness. One character dies, another nearly dies. Anthony Rapp. It's uh, very much about how to, what, what people do in the face of all that. And in the case of the show, the, the, the group of friends really bands together. And so, I don't know, I guess maybe on some level, uh, Stephanie thought that we would appreciate the plight of somebody who was young and facing something dire like that. And then everybody would band around. Yeah. In a way, it's like it's, she's casting herself in the show. Yeah, sure. 
See, in a way, it's like, it's like you know, what does a fan want from a show? Especially the, the kind of fan who comes back again and again. It's like somehow they want to get closer to it. They want to yeah, they, they want to get in inside it. it. They yeah. want to be in it. And, I know and, when I see a show that I love, I want to be in it. I mean, I mean, I mean, seriously, it brought out the best in people. It did. In fact, the script of the show provided a model for everyone on how to act with Stephanie, both for the fans who saw the show dozens of times and the cast who sung out their hearts every night about the importance of sticking by your friends when they're dying. Stephanie got her wish. Not only did she get sympathy and attention, she got it from the very people who she watched on stage, in rent, time and again. When Catherine went back through her old emails, she noticed how often Stephanie was asking to deliver a message to the cast or asking about the cast. Afterwards, it was just pretty sick to read back and see it that she really didn't care about her. People that thought she, that we thought we were her friends, she really cared more about the cast and their reaction. You know the, the, the point in the show where Angel dies and then all the other characters come forward and give yeah. little tributes? Eulogy. Yeah, give little eulogies. Do, do you think that Stephanie fantasized about all of you? Do, you do. Oh, ab- absolutely. She had emailed us and said, you know, when, when I go and when, when they put me in the ground, I want, <clears throat> you know, I want so-and-so to sing the, the reprise of I'll Cover You from the show at my grave. It would, it would be great. When I first realized that it was all a lie, I was very angry. Again, cast member Gwen Stewart. Very angry, and that's why I didn't speak to any of them, because I had allowed a bunch of strangers to come into my life, and to and I had opened my heart to them. After this, did you change your attitude toward, toward the fans in general? Not really. Um, I mean, I didn't give out my number anymore, but... I still signed autographs. I still took the time to talk to people and, you know, took pictures and all that other stuff. I just, I didn't, I didn't open myself up anymore like I did. You know, it's, I felt betrayed, you know, and I had to make sure that I didn't allow anybody else to do that. After all this happened, um, did you want to pray for her still? Oh, I did. I did, because I, I, I realized that sickness and death were the least of her problems. Back on 41st Street, Rebecca and Joe, who knew Stephanie, but not all that well, said that Stephanie was just doing a more extreme version of what a lot of people did on the line. It's kind of not surprising to find out that something you think about someone in the line is a lie, or just like a little off. <laughs> Sasha, please don't get me started. But, uh, like, for example, this is my good friend, Joe Gillis. But that is not his name. And how long did I know you before I knew that that was not your name? When did you figure out that was not my name? What is your name? <laughs> <laughs> my name is Joe Falduti. On the line, there was a Bridget whose real name was Laura, a 15-year-old who everybody thought was 22, and many gay teenagers who were out only on the neutral ground of 41st Street. I mean, I, I actively knew it was not real life. Like, yeah. like, and I actually would like say my rent friends and my real friends, you know? But it's like really weird how like something that was so not real, like affected real life so much. Well, in the way it played us too. Like that's what theater wants to do is they want you to, you know, 
become emotionally involved and care about something and then leave it and go back to your real life. Which is what Stephanie did on the rent line. She got everyone emotionally involved, made them care about something, and then she went back to her real life. All rent for rent and empty heart Just say the word and you can move right ahead A long-term lease can be arranged And it will never be for rent Well, our program was produced today by me and Blue Chevany with Alex Bloomberg, Susan Burton, and Julie Snyder. Contributing editors Paul Tuff, Jack Hitt, Margie Rock, and Elise Spiegel, Nancy Updike, and Consul Yuri Saravow. Production up from Todd Bachman and Eric Hoverston. Elizabeth Meister runs our website. Musical help today from one of our listeners who sent us an instrumental CD, Rand Coriega. Special thanks today to Bob Carlson and to Rebecca Allen, who helped us with our rent story. If you'd like to buy a cassette of this or any of our programs, call us here at WBEZ in Chicago, 312-832-3380. Or, you know, you can order cassettes of our programs or listen online for free at our website, www.thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Funding for our show comes from the Capital Group Companies, investing for individuals and institutions throughout the world, and sponsor of the American Funds Group of Mutual Funds. Other funding comes from the Albert A. List Foundation and the listeners of WBEZ in Chicago. WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malatia who is not jealous at all of the fact that the This American Life staff gets to tape interviews all the time. You know, I do it too. I tape people using an alias. I'm Ira Glass, back next week with more stories of This American Life. Poetry, Poetry so, sweet, so sweet Has her at his feet She thinks she's the one But he has just begun All her friends, they just watch her For they know the great imposter And she's soon to join the roster PRI Public Radio International